What do I think of when I hear the word storytelling? There's a few different things that I think of. I mean, one thing I think of is like our essential humanity, right? The stuff that makes us human are the stories that we tell one another, the stories we tell about ourselves, the narrative that we put our own life into. And I think I also then start thinking about the stories that I like to tell about my own life, you know, which are often stories about meeting people. So when I met Allen Ginsberg or when I met Barack Obama or and sort of like meeting famous people or moments when I or like stories about stories about reporting adventures when I was working as a journalist or training as a journalist. The power of story can speak to the most profound depths of the human experience or just give us a good laugh. This versatile method of expression manifests itself in almost every facet of our lives and is a major driver for human connection, happiness, and progress. In the next half hour or so, we are going to be examining story, how we tell it, why we tell it, and its power by talking to two professional storytellers. I'm Evan Ditchman, and this is Storytime with Ditch. Our guests today are actress and writer Sarah Dern and professional storyteller and creator of the 7-Minute Stories podcast, Aaron Califato. To begin, let's see what the life of a storyteller is like. Here's what Sarah had to say. Sure. So I am an actor and a freelance writer based in New Orleans. And I was just in Cleveland doing a play at Dobama called The Nether, which is sort of a very crazy play. It's very Law and Order SVU meets Black Mirror. And I played a young female detective in that. Yeah, and then I, since then, I have gotten back to New Orleans, and I actually just start rehearsals tonight for a new play called, well, it's a new production of Much Ado About Nothing, very old play in reality. Um, Shakespeare is Much Ado About Nothing, and in between all of that, I've been writing and uh, written for a couple online publications, mostly. Yeah, and then plethora of day jobs as well. <laughs> I also sat down with Aaron, and he told us what he's been up to. So with storytelling, you're always involved in like a multitude of projects. So believe it or not, for the seven-minute stories, that's about seven hours of work a week. And there's a team of four people that work on that. And it's, it's really divided into two parts. Most of my time, I've gone all in to this micro-content format of telling stories in, in, in this sort of seven-minute ratio. The other work that I do that I get paid to do sort of as a hired gun because of the storytelling skill set that I have is usually by companies who say, hey, we want you to help us tell stories. So I was working for a nonprofit that, about a year ago that was sort of spawned through a viral movement. So I was the director of social marketing there for about a year. And then now uh, I'm the content manager for a media company called Colleague Media. And what I do there is essentially, it's kind of a cool opportunity because it's a blank slate and they say, hey, we have all these companies and clients that we work with to create uh, media for. But in addition to that, help us craft narrative help us craft stories. And that can be like this, where I'm saying, hey, let's do a podcast. What form does that story take? Is it uh, visually? Is it through micro content? And how do we place it on social? And 
that's sort of the orchestrator or the conductor, so to speak. That's kind of what I do as far as narrative, sort of like a conductor of narrative and being able to ideate it, create it, and then execute it as a form. So content manager, about half my time, and then telling seven-minute stories every week. That's about half my time from an, art, from an artistic and a creative standpoint. So there are a ton of things that you can do with storytelling, even professionally. And Aaron and Sarah didn't even touch on how storytelling is a necessity in things like computer science and engineering. I mean, if you aren't able to tell a story with your code or in your design process, how can anyone else hope to understand it? The universality of story makes it key to the human experience. But I was curious about what draws a person to storytelling individually. Here's what Aaron had to say. Well, first it starts as a way of life. What drew me in was the power of it. Uh, my dad, my grandfather were great storytellers. They could, with no other tool, not a camera, not a stage, not a bunch of lights, right? Not a, not, not a, a red camera. Those are all great tools. Without any other tools, it's like, it's like primal. It's like campfire shit. They could, they could take me to another dimension with their stories. And I remember as a kid just sitting back and going, holy shit, the power in that. Also, in addition to the power, I got to know them. So what's interesting about story and what drew me to it is that story is a direct connection to the human psyche. It bypasses the barriers of our physicality, of our, of our social norms, of our fears, of our emotions, so to speak, on the outward, you know, our outward appearance of those things. Like, like you and I are talking right now, and there's literally a glass in between us because we want high quality for the sound. I've never met you before, but we're having this conversation. But as I'm telling you things about me, you might not know me holistically, but I'm giving you an insight to who I am as a human being. And if you were to do the same, you're the interviewer now, but if you were to do the same and it was more of an exchange and you were like, let me tell you a story, that's a direct line and a direct connection to the nature of who you are. Here's what you find, I think, in most cases, in the best cases. One, you find that you are more similar than dissimilar to other human beings. And if you find that it is dissimilar, you learn more about yourself and you learn more about others. You learn about a way in which you would like to live or that you don't want to live. It is a direct connection to the human experience. And it's, it's literally like transporting. Because if I see you on the street, see, this is all made for our conversation. If I saw you on the street, or if I saw you in a business meeting, hello, how are you? Yes, hello, hi, hi, I have a tie on, hello. We're shaking, hello, hi, hi. And then what's, what's at stake? Your job's at stake, there's a sale at stake, right? Or something, there's something in between us. There's reputations that are at stake. You don't wanna be rude, I don't wanna be rude. We're exchanging weird kind of like conversational surfacey things that are happening. That's not, that's surface shit. And again, that you need that. We need that. We can't be in deep conversations with every person we meet. But what? But we are all deep human beings. We're all deep in that way. So what I love about story is you can be. In, you could not know somebody, and they go, "Let me tell you about the time when I came back from uh, when I came back from the war." And you're like, "What?" And they're like, "Yeah, maybe that." Or how about when they started like this? Can I tell you something I've never told anybody? 
that's an incredible gift to share. So that's what drew me. It was the, was the fact that I saw great storytellers and I saw them do it at a level that was like, wow, not only do I want to do that, I thought, I think I can do that. I don't do a lot of things really well. Like, seriously, like, just look at my calendar. Like, I'm freaking out right now because after this, I have to go to Target and get a slip and slide for my daughter's birthday party. I am a disaster. Bro, I, I'm not even kidding you. I'm seriously, I'm having a mild anxiety attack. But what I can do is talk, for you, talk with you for 20 minutes. Sarah also shared how she got her start in storytelling. It, it's funny. I mean, a very recent anecdote that's been true of me ever since I was very little is there's a couple bars in New Orleans that happen to play movies rather than, you know, I don't know what typical, like, sports. <laughs> um, and I'll get so into the movie that people start coming up to me and asking if I'm okay because I'll just end up watching the Titanic at the karaoke bar rather than singing or talking to anyone or even drinking anything. I'm just watching the Titanic. And when somebody asks me if I'm okay, I'm like, no, these people are gonna die because this is, <laughs> this is the Titanic. Like clearly this, I'm not okay. <laughs> um, and I think that's been true of me ever since I was really little. I've just, I just, for me, stories are like, I just knew really young that I just wanted in on that world and acting and I, I didn't even know it was really acting or and I, I still don't like I think for me it's just kind of art in general and storytelling for me is really the thing that gets me going I can just fall into stories so hard that it is oftentimes is more appealing than real life. There is an array of things that can get you into storytelling, and I think that speaks to the uniqueness of every person. Speaking of individuality, one of the reasons I selected these guests today is because I wanted to interview someone who primarily tells fictional stories, Sarah, and someone who, for the most part, tells true stories, Aaron. The juxtaposition of these types of stories is really interesting, especially because it seems like both speak to the same thing. I asked Aaron to compare the power of the two, and he told me, Both are compelling, and both are different approaches. Because at the end of the day, if it's a good story, it's universal. It's not obtuse. You're not like, what? Can I swear on this? Yeah, it's fine. It's like, you're not like, what the fuck are you saying? But if you know what it's like to wait for your father at the window... And you don't know if he's going to come home. There's a billion people who know that story. If, if you know what it's like to watch your child come into this world, whether you have done it yet or you've experienced it as an aunt or an uncle or whatever, to, you know that story. You know the story of redemption, of, of being a failed human being. We're literally, we are, uh, we are imperfect. How do we redeem that imperfection? That's a universal story. And there's stories like that all over the place. There's religious doctrines that are based on these narratives. The very nature of all, like, religion is a narrative because the narrative takes you on the journey to then have the realization. So it's story itself, which is a thing. So it's not just for businesses. It's obviously, it's universal, but I feel like that's the, that's the key component is when it works, whether it's in an artistic platform or whether you're utilizing it for a purpose to sell a product. At the end of the day, you're, you know, my function is, it's not about selling the product, it's about connecting with another human being. 
And you're essentially utilizing it to say, hey, I'm providing this value and this service for you. But let me tell you that it's a human being who's doing this. And let me tell you the story behind it. And that's the thing that I think earns trust. I struggled a little more with the power of fiction. So I asked Sarah to explain the impact of stories that had characters who weren't even real. God, it sounds so... aren't even real. It sounds so harsh. It's like that they're, they're so real simultaneously. I think, I mean... I've always been a lover of, yeah, like I, there's so many stories and so many moments I've had in theaters and movie theaters and theater theaters with live performance that have left me unable to speak afterwards. Like, you know, when you see a movie and it's just so incredible and it's a combination of all these perfect elements. You have, you know, the perfect amount of popcorn and a root beer and it's like a matinee at the movie theater and there's no one. I love going to matinees at, at movies because I feel like they're sort of, they shouldn't exist and yet they do. And it's you and these two old ladies who have clearly been retired for 40 years who can't hear half the movie and are talking to each other. It's just like, I think I'm getting away from the question, but when you walk away from the, I remember I saw um, Call Me By Your Name and it just, it was after uh, my great uncle had just died and it was, it was just so beautiful and I felt so held by this story and sure it wasn't real, but it, it left me incapable of using words. I mean, death in general leaves you so oftentimes words just don't fit, but just knowing that there's, you know, it's such a deeply human thing. I just felt, and this has been true since I was really little, that if there's one that I don't think animals tell each other stories, or if they do, it's certainly not in the same way that humans do. And it's this one very clear distinguishing factor that humans have. And I think that's why I wanted to get involved in it, because it feels so deeply important, even with the knowledge that these characters aren't real, but they're real because of their like they have all elements of truth, you know, the, when you read a really good play there, it's a good play because they're, it's a recognizable. It's, it's, that's me. That's my life. Even if it's totally unrelated, even if it's, you know, the play I was just in the nether was some unspecified time in the future. And everyone was like, this is happening. This is real. Like, what are these questions we're asking about um, reality and, it was a really good play also because it had very human characters. My character in that was really flawed in that she was sort of pursuing this um, investigation into this child porn site because of her own weird relationship with her father and feeling neglected. And I think it's really dangerous whenever we don't acknowledge the stories of our own lives that guide us so oftentimes. I think that both Aaron and Sarah are getting at an essential quality of story. It's identifiable. Whether it be a matinee performance of Into the Woods or a multinational company's mission statement, people can resonate with stories and find a part of themselves within something completely unrecognizable, even the life of an entirely different person. Aaron, for example, tells stories about his life experiences in his podcasts, so I asked him why he thinks that speaks to others. Because what I'm experiencing isn't unique. You know, what I'm experiencing is is very, um, it's plural. 
again, percentage here, percentage there. Like, I probably can't identify with a serial killer. He can't with me. Probably can't identify with someone. I can't. I probably can't identify with Mother Teresa. She's she's like on a whole nother level. But for the most part, the the human experience, I feel like that's what is the connective source. It's seeing yourself in someone else's story and seeing them in your story. And it's a realization that either challenges you or makes you think about your own experience in a way. And and even if the experience, like the specific experience, like I can't relate to, or I can't specifically relate to being in a war-torn country, but I can relate to what it's like to hurt. I can't relate to, to what it would be like to exploit yourself or sell your body for money, right? I can't really, I have not done, but I can relate to what it feels like to doing anything it takes to get what I want, or at least that instinct. And and once you once you cross those lines, you start saying, "What? Well, we're not that." It's there's a lot of gray. I feel like that's the thing that's a connective experience. If you can, and again, this is really universal and old stuff that's been around for it's ancient. That's why story. That's why story is the most powerful thing in the world, because it's 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 literally our ancient birthright. And and it's. It's back when cavemen and women were around the fire. It can be informational, right? You can literally just say, don't go in woods. Woods scary. Mean animals could eat you, right? I mean, you, I'm doing my best caveman impression. Like, you could literally say that, but there's another way to, how do you captivate someone? And that's when the story is like, at night when you walked into the woods, there was this giant beast and once upon a time, right? And, you, and so you use this artistic expression to really drive home a point. It also, I think, and this is getting really kind of out there, I think the, the great storytellers and the great narratives that are have been used in all societies for generations are a roadmap for a better life. I think the great narratives and the great myths are a gift from our ancestors to point us to the way. And the way not being a specific doctrine but just kind of pushing us in a direction of connectivity, of universality, of, of love and compassion. They push us, I think, towards those things, even without directly saying it. And that's a gift from our ancestors. And so to tell those same stories just in a different way, whether it's seven minutes or you're a director of a movie, you're, you're providing a service really for humanity. Uh, and you're just adding your voice to the chorus of pushing us in the way. The essence of all of those stories at all levels are the same and they're universal and they are a roadmap to living, I think, a more complete life and pushing us in a direction to seek for something greater than just uh, what our biology offers. Because stories might be a result of the biology of our brains, but they also speak to, I think, a deeper experience outside of ourselves into almost a sphere of, of ideas. And that's not physical, that's metaphysical. And then it kind of pushes you to question things. It pushes you to be empathetic. Because to tell a story or to listen to a story requires expression and empathy on both parts. You have to listen and then you have to express whatever role you're playing. And that's an exercise in empathy. And I think we could agree, just in, in principle, that when you're open and empathetic, 
it leads to a more complete or at least a more vibrant experience of being alive. Like Aaron said, it isn't just the storyteller who is involved in telling a story. The collaboration and connection that stories offer just might be pointing society in the right direction. But stories don't just come from nothing. Our experiences shape our stories. And I asked Sarah how hers impact her work as both an actor and a writer. Yeah. My life, it has everything to do with it. When I'm acting, I don't really, I don't know if I really believe that you become a different person on stage. I think I, you know, it always reminds me of that Walt Whitman quote of, like, we all contain multitudes. I contain multitudes and that, and that's kind of what I think of when I'm acting is it's, it's still me. It's just me kind of wiping away certain aspects of the person and personality I walk around the world with and accentuating other facts. And so, I mean, that becomes all of my, so much of my, who I am is in my acting. (laughs) My cat is meowing. And then with writing, I mean, with, I mean, certainly with personal essays, it's, it's so, it, I mean, it's directly my, my experiences. And then it's finding the words to use to describe them. And I guess to give an example, I, I wrote, my, my brother passed away in a car accident and he, it's sort of the weirdness of certain anniversaries, like the anniversary of his death and the anniversary and like his birthday and not knowing what to do with those days. And, um, I wrote this personal essay about how the hunger games has become a really strange touchstone within all of that. Um, and I was sort of just ruminating on the fact that there is, there's so many stories that surround us, you know, between all the movies and films and, and songs with stories and they leave a certain imprint. Um, and and I just can, I so remember, because I, I watched part one of Mockingjay uh, the day he died, and I watched part two on his birthday, and I was just in this personal essay talking about how much of our own story gets wrapped up into these other stories and pieces of mass media too, which is seen as sort of low art so oftentimes, <laughs> which I think is kind of bullshit because he's to say what's high art and what's low art. And I also see, I have, I just am a huge fan of mass media. I love, I think it's really interesting whatever stories are being told on such a grand scale, if it's The Bachelor or <laughs> if it's Game of Thrones. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing to investigate kind of the stories that seem to be entering in some sort of the zeitgeist of our world. Um, yeah. So I guess those are the two ways I, I bring myself to breathe 
I mean, with personal essays, it's very obvious. And then with acting, it's just wiping away other pieces of me to leave others. I mean, when I'm writing like a personal essay that I, that it's my choice and it's something I really want to write, it feels, feels like therapy, like the best therapy session. And that it's um, me figuring out the words to tell my own experience. Um, and, and that's such a, just that act of finding the right word. And when I've shared those essays on different platforms and things, it's, it's always been so incredible because people just respond to it. I mean, this is kind of going back to your previous question of why do these fictional characters matter so much is when these very specific anecdotes from my life they feel very important to me but it sort of feels like gosh there's no way this could mean something to somebody else um when those really specific anecdotes do like when they impact people and it's and there's such a a recognition in that it's sort of you know it's in some ways I'm just thinking about it now it's the same sort of attention that I do in in theater and uh, in stage and film acting and that it's it's this I see you it's like a witnessing of another person's humanity I want you to take a second to digest what Sarah just said that her experience expressed through story is so powerful you can see how story helps her to find and understand herself highlighting and exploring certain aspects in every performance and analyzing her experience in writing. But it extends beyond that. Story is a mirror for the world, telling us about our society, and it helps people feel heard. In a cold corporate world, feeling like you matter is essential. I asked Aaron why a business would need to tell stories. He gave the example of someone who needs an auto detailer, and how story transforms the interaction between company and consumer. So you may not know the nuts and bolts of auto detailing, but if you need it as a consumer, and you see that this guy is putting content out there where he's going, hey, this is about me and my dad, and the hour every Saturday that we had, and it wasn't a lot, but that was our time to connect. That's how I would tell a story for that business, and that differentiates you. So. Why businesses and why stories? Because of that. I mean, look at the Super Bowl. The best ads in the world are the most simple connection to the universal human experience. It's not haggling prices. Some of, some of the time it can be funny, but the stuff that really strikes a chord that you think about, the check mark, right, Nike. But they have some simple ads. And I say simple not in its execution but in its concept because what they know that m- most businesses have learned and are learning now through content marketing and what artists and storytellers have known for generations is that story, the act of telling a story, is the most primal and essential phenomenon in human history. And if you don't know how to do it, you, one, you should learn, and two, you can utilize that power even if you're not a great storyteller and employ people like me to help tell your stories. This knowledge is really important especially when we look at the huge amount of content and stories that come out of the United States, which Sarah says influences our everyday lives, interactions, and even the way our world works. Oh, 
Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I think in so many ways, the biggest export out of the United States these days is our media. It's the films and TV and music we make, and it gets everywhere. I was in India. I studied abroad there in college, and people are obsessed with American culture there because it's everywhere. And there's sort of this weird, it's a a very weird thing because India is such an ancient culture with so many of its own stories. And here they are dressing with leather jackets and jeans and a a climate that it really doesn't suit. (laughs) It's like, I would not want to wear that right now. Um, Yeah. And I always, I always think, I mean, uh, I went to a really specific program in college, I, I went to NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where it's a very fancy schmancy title for basically you, you make up your major. <laughs> and I, my major was collaborative storytelling. And I was really interested in the um, intersection of storytelling and identity and how I really believe that we are the story we tell. And if for instance, we are constantly telling ourselves how we're never going to succeed or we're never going to get this and we're never going to get that. We're never going to get that or we're never going to get this. And, um, and like, I think it's really interesting the moments of introduction. Like when you say, hi, how are you? uh, What do you do? Cause I feel like so much of that, um, dictates the story we become in somebody else's head. So I'm really careful with those moments. And I think those work on, to answer your question on like a larger scale within our culture in that there's certain stories of take the U S um, that we tell about the U.S. or in our founding and the sort of mythical story of our founding fathers. And, and that gets, it gets adjusted through time. And so I think there's always like stories we tell about culture that define who we are at different points in time. So I think it's really important to try and figure out what's the stories of our moment right now. What does The Bachelor tell us about the United States and our weird perceptions of what love is <laughs> and kind of this very capitalist society of like there can only be one <laughs> and like you have to beat each other out and it, there's all these stories within stories and Aaron also recognizes that there is a pervasive culture of competition in today's world and has designed his podcast to cater to that it just so happens that it allows him to tell the types of stories that he wants to tell as well. I wanted to do something that was respectful of people's time. Because of the fact that we are bombarded with so much, I feel like if someone gives you seven minutes of their time, that is a long time. Compare, you know, to, As far as what's flashing on their phone and what's on their feed and who's calling them, who's texting them, if I can earn their trust and, and, and we can start at that level... It's something that we can build a trustful relationship with as a, as a creator and as a person listening, but also something that they can look forward to every week, like a series. And they can come back to it and they're just like, you know, they got their day of their week, they're like, wait, what? oh yeah, 
this this week? What's what's this guy up to now? What's happening now? And it's also a way for me to dive deep into my life while at the same time being selective with my vulnerability so that it doesn't require... Because I still believe in... in being private to a certain degree. Like, not that's not saying that when I tell a story that I don't open up completely. But there are certain things that I feel like people are exploitive with themselves just for the sake of audience. That they exploit things and people around them just for the sake of a listener or a viewer. And I feel like I can still give you an authentic look into my life while at the same time keeping a, a respectful distance between me and the listener. I, I know that's kind of coming off weird, but in a sense where they have an insight to me, but it isn't me saying, look at me, I'm waking up in the morning, I'm cooking eggs, look at you, like, I have my life, but what I'm giving you is absolutely a part of myself. And it's a real exchange. And I feel like it's a, it's a easy exchange and a connection. And so, it's not reading off of a paper. It's not, you know, reciting something. And it's not interviewing, but it's literally pressing record and extemporaneously telling a story. You sort of know where you're going, but when you're telling it, it's like you're telling it for the first time. And there's the freedom to kind of go left or right. Whereas, you know, because I train traditionally as an actor, when you're on script, unless you have the creative freedom like a Robert De Niro or you're working with a, a director who allows for improvisation, for the most part, you don't go on a set and say, you know, fuck the writer. Like, I'm just gonna improvise whatever I wanna do and like, what am I feeling in this moment? Like, your, your whole thing is, I have to read off the script. And I found out that I was much better telling my own stories than filtering writers' stories through me. Like, I was decent as an actor, but the voice that was easiest for me to access, the way that was easiest for me to connect with people, was through the artist's story, literally telling them a story, and then also through conversation. And so in a way, I was not that skilled of an actor in the sense that I could not adapt myself to being a vessel. I was, and it's not just, it's a little bit of ego, but it was also more just that I couldn't access the, I think the type of vulnerability and ease that I can access when I'm talking to someone or when I'm creating my own story. It seems like, for Aaron, creating his own story gives him an amazing amount of fulfillment. For Sarah, however, the true value of story comes in the little moments. I think it's an easy thing to lose sight of. And especially as an artist, it seems like, why do we do it? And so oftentimes it's hard and difficult and and then you have that great moment with a story where it leaves you incapable of speech and you can't form words and it breaks some fundamental piece of you. I believe it breaks the story you've been telling about yourself and it somehow wiggles its way in. Um, and then when you're able to talk about that piece of theater or the film that was able to do that, it you leave, like that story is in there now. It's just a part of you. 
Having looked at story through two vastly different perspectives, let's take a step back and look at the whole picture. Put very simply, both Sarah, Aaron, and now myself believe that story is a universal part of the human experience. It speaks to something deeper than our biases, something that allows us to identify with others, to trust strangers, to resonate with fiction. It helps us discover who we are, unites generations, and allows voices to be heard. And with that, I will share with you one more time Sarah and Aaron's voices, each telling their own story. But this is this is from a play I've just been cast in called Stupid Fucking Bird by Aaron Posner. It's called A Sort of Adapted from the Seagull by Anton Chekhov. And I'll be playing Nina this fall in this very, in this really great adaption. And this is the end of the play. And I just think it's so great. So I'll just, I'll just read it. Um, I should give a little bit of context. So Nina in this play uh, is an actor and has dated or dated like five years ago, four years ago, this guy Con and short for Conrad and Constantine in the original. And she's explaining to him why she can't act. She says, you know why? I'm a seagull and seagulls can't act. That should be on a t-shirt too. Seagulls can't act. You know why? You know why? Because they have no lips. They have no little lips to kiss you with. And they have tiny, tiny little bird-like hearts. Only little tiny hearts that can't hold all the love you deserve. Seagulls can't act because they fly up above all the things that matter on this earth, all the things that are real, all those who love them and would take care of them and all their tiny babies. And they are selfish and selfish and selfish. I have to go. I have to go. I can't. I just can't. It's all too absurd. <laughs> Goodbye, Connie. Thank you. Thank you for loving me. I think you love me better and more than anyone ever has or ever will. And I don't understand you and I never will, but thank you for everything. Goodbye. And that's right at the end there. And that's it. When I was five years old, I, and sometimes memory is funny this way, it's kind of cloudy, but this is what I recall. When I was five years old, I was in my living room and my mom and my dad were fighting. And when I revisit that memory and I think about it, I realized that that was a pattern that had always been there, that there was a lot of fighting when I was a kid. Don't know about what, don't know about who. Don't know about the subject matter, but there was a lot of contention. I do know that I loved both my parents, and I do, know, I do know that they were both great people as far as how they were with me. But together, I noticed, and in our home, 
it was it didn't feel like a place where uh, where there was a lot of connection and tranquility. And so I remember one night in my living room, my mom and my dad are screaming, and it seemed to have come to a climax, like something had happened. See, my five-year-old brain, as I'm thinking about it, I can't articulate, but I noticed in brush strokes, right, like as an artist, like it came to a point in, in the score of a, of a musical, right, or, or some sort of piece of music where you know like everything's coming to a point where, where it's important. That night in the living room was important. And my mom had said her last words. My brother, my, my, my brother was in the room and he was about two years old. So he was sort of witnessing this in his little PJs, the footy pajamas that she had the zipper. You got to watch out so you don't zip yourself up kind of thing. It's like those, those, enti- those body long uh, PJs. I remember that it was like a, a powder blue. He wore that. And uh, my mom had folded her arms. She was done arguing. And my dad came up to me and uh, kind of came down to my level on his knee and said, uh, you got to be the man of the house now. I'm leaving. I want you to take care of your mom. Know that I love you. You're not going to see me for a while. But just know that I care about you and I need you to be the man of the house. And my dad left. He shut this giant red door that we had. And my mom had said something like, you know, run away like you always do. Something like that that you hear in the movies. And my dad got into a red Toyota Celica that looked like a spaceship and pulled the car out and started driving away. And the last thing I remember in that vignette, in that memory, is being at the window and watching the taillights of his car fade away. Flash forward, my daughter's being born. And her name's Luciana, and I was 31, so just five years ago. She's going to be six in actually a couple of days. And as she entered the world, uh, I ended up being the first one to hold her because there was some sort of complication. And I remember she opened her eyes and she looked at me. And I, at that moment, told her how much I loved her. I told her that I would, in all my power, never leave her, even in physical form, but outside of physical form, if I could, I would never leave her. And that in my head, I made a promise that she would feel something that I didn't uh, as a kid. And that she, if she ever saw me driving away in any kind of car, Toyota Celica or not, when she looked out the window, she would be filled with the reassurance that one, I had every intention of coming back. And two, I loved her more than anything in this entire universe. And I wanted to shape the universe that she grew up in to be a little different than mine. And that's what I try to do every single day. And that's why after this, I got to go help plan her birthday party. I want to thank both Sarah Dern and Aaron Califato for sitting down with me for this podcast. I'd also like to thank Dan Multhrop, who you heard at the beginning of this podcast, for all his insight on this project. I'd also like to give a shout out to the team at Evergreen Podcasts for helping with this production, especially audio engineers Dave Douglas and Eric Coltnow, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Joan Andrews. For more information, you can visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Thanks for listening to Storytime. I'm Ditch, and I'll see you next time.